This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And according to our upcoming guest, a dissenting opinion in the establishment media, Western media that is, seems to be concerned for the people of Gaza or the West Bank. And we're including the West Bank here because what is happening in Gaza is overshadowing the abuses in the West Bank as they go as unreported as they were prior to the October 7th attacks by Hamas. You might be thinking that you have seen some criticism of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, and you would be correct, but the amount of coverage not only in the last month, but in the last several decades, has far outweighed the massive weight of evidence that shows the Western media being far more sympathetic to lost Israeli lives than it is to the deaths of Palestinians. Before the attacks, we had no idea of what life was like in Gaza. Now, after the attacks, we have little idea of what death is like either. In a few minutes, we will have the return of professor and chair of UCLA's Department of English, Sari Makdisi, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his N plus one article on Gaza, No Human Being Can Exist. How can a person make up for seven decades of misrepresentation and willful distortion in the time allotted to a soundbite? Sri is the author of Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial, which was published in 2022 by the University of California Press. In fact, it was on our short list of books to be featured here on This Is Hell, but unfortunately I was in the hospital for several months. Here's how his publisher describes the book. Despite well-documented evidence of racism and human rights abuse, Israel has long been embraced by the most liberal sectors of European and American society as a manifestation of the progressive values of tolerance, plurality, inclusivity, and democracy, and hence a project that can be passionately defended for its lofty ideals. The key to this miraculous act of political alchemy is a very specific form of denial. Here the Palestinian presence in uh, and claim to Palestine is not simply refused or covered up, but negated in such a way that the act of denial is itself denied. So it sounds like a really fascinating book, especially now. He is also the author of several other books, including Making England Western, Occidentalism, Race and Imperial Culture, and Palestine Inside Out, an Everyday Occupation. Sri is presently working on a new book project, London's Modernities, on the mapping and unmapping of London from the 19th century to the present. Sri comes from a family of leading academics and intellectuals. His father, Anis, taught Arabic literature at the American University of Beirut, while his father, Samir, that was his grandfather, Anis, while his father, Samir, uh, currently teaches economics there as well. His mother, Jean Saeed Makdisi, also used to teach, but is now an independent scholar. Suri is also the nephew of the late Edward Saeed. Suri devotes substantial time and energy to defending the Palestinian people's rights and to exploring alternatives to what he calls the now moribund two-state solution that will enable peace with justice for both Israelis and Palestinians. He has written for many different publications, including LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Houston Chronicle, London Review of Books, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Washington Post, the Guardian. His most recent writing at The Nation includes, The War Against Palestinians on Campus Keeps Getting More Absurd. So you would think that must have been posted since October 7th. 
But no, in fact, that was posted on October 3rd, four days before the current crisis began. His latest post at The Nation is titled, Things in Palestine May Never Be the Same Again. My humble guess is that Sri does not remember being on our show in the past as it was way back on April 1st, 2006, when he gave his analysis on that week's Israeli elections and discussed his then just posted analysis of at Counterpunch entitled The Rise of Israel's Avigdor Lieberman on the success of the far right politician in those elections and what that meant for Israel's future. In fact, we will be featuring that this week on our Patreon podcast as the archived interview. Uh, the interview from our archives that is unavailable anywhere else online at the time. So you can hear that interview by subscribing to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can follow Sari on Twitter at Sari Makdizi. That's S-A-R-E-E-M-A-K-D-I-S-I. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, I know you have COVID, but how has your week gone so far? Uh, well, it's kind of defined the week. Been <laughs> having Zoom class again, which I thought uh, those days were behind us. But uh, so I'm putting myself and my students through uh, online learning again. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't uh, be in a classroom with right. them. Right. So having discussion over Zoom is always horrible. But you know, we make do. Yeah, and by the way, even though you're wearing a mask, your voice sounds very good. Oh, good. It's like an extra pop filter, you know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. And you're not going to get any peaks coming from my voice. No P's, S's, or T's, nothing nope. like that. Nope. So personally, I'm pretty personally... I am exhausted. Let's take that. Apparently, I forgot the seven dirty words. Man, how did that happen? Uh, Yes, by doing all the work I have to do to put the show together this week. But more than that, I'm exhausted by the hellish world we live in. Every week, we seek out guests to give us analysis, perspectives, news, views that are being ignored in the U.S. media or the Western media as a whole. And wow, is the Western media a whole, a chasm, a bottomless pit of a mix of government propaganda, apologists for the abuses and exploitation of capitalism and the conflict of interest that is the reproduction of celebrity which feeds the media's bottom line. It's getting to be, uh, getting to the point that I cannot take it anymore. The, the clear bias, journalism being replaced by the media industry and conventional wisdom that does nothing but reinforce the status quo which is behind the forever war, climate change, pandemics, and every other crisis they've chosen to force upon all all of us. So on that bleak note, Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what are you uncritically supporting these what days? What are you uncritically supporting these days? We will be sharing your question from hell answers as posted at Twitter and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Following our talk with Suri, as well as uh, any stragglers that remain on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, on uh, Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, in our Discord community, and in our Facebook group, Welcome to the Hell Hole. Here at This Is Hell, we are very fortunate to have listeners who send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Listeners have gifted us with subscriptions to their local papers. Thanks, Riley, for the Yellow Spring, Ohio news. And Chris for sending us the uh, Ballard uh, monthly alternative newspaper out of Portland, Maine. In the actual mail, we also receive prints from the amazing humans at Kennedy Prints. 
in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood on Detroit's east side. Shout out to Mimi Machete. The prints are on cardboard, about six by eight inches, and each one features a quote. This week we got four more in the mail, two different versions of two different quotes. One is a quote from Sister Carita Kent. I was not familiar with Sister Carita Kent, also known as Sister Mary Carita. Uh, Apparently she was an artist with an innovative approach to design and education. By the 1960s, her vibrant scenographs were drawing international acclaim. Uh, Carita's work reflected her concerns about poverty, racism, and war, and her messages of peace and social justice continue to resonate with audiences today. There's also a Carita Art Center in Los Angeles, which preserves and promotes uh, Sister Carita's art, her teaching, and passion for social justice. Today, the Carita Art Center supports exhibition loans and public programs, oversees image and merchandising rights, sells Carita's original prints, and serves as a resource and archive on her life and her work. The quote from Sister Mary that's featured on the print is, consider everything an experiment, which apparently is the way Sister Mary led her life. Kennedy Prince also sent us a card with a quote from the outstanding photographer Gordon Parks. I was somewhat familiar with Gordon's work as I know a lot of photographers. Gordon was one of the most groundbreaking figures in 20th century photography. His photojournalism during the 40s to the 70s reveals important aspects of American culture, and he became known for focusing on issues of civil rights, poverty, race, relations, and urban life. And if you are unfamiliar, please go look up Gordon Parks' photography because it is mind-blowing. The quote from Parks on the card from Kennedy Prince is, Enthusiasm is the electricity of life. So thank you, Kennedy Prince. We also got a a message via Facebook from listener David I, who writes of our talk from early October with Ariel Angel, editor-in-chief at Jewish Currents. We spoke with Ariel about Palestinian-Israeli solidarity and peace movements. It was our first interview on the current and ongoing war in Gaza. David writes, I've been meaning to comment on this for a while. It was one of the very best interviews I've heard about Gaza. It hit me very hard. Our interview with Ariel was on her article, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other. During that conversation, 10 days after the attack on Israel by Hamas, Ariel told us, as soon as we get into the realm of these people are evil, irrational, you know, bloodthirsty monsters, then we are in genocidal territory. Sadly, she was correct. Kilter contacted us in our Discord community about an old interview we replayed during last week's shows on uh, WNUR, uh, Chicago Sound Experiment, and on, on Beware the Radio in the UK. That interview was from 2015, and it was with the Middle East scholar Norman Finkelstein, who is an avowed critic of Israel's government. Like many people today, Norman lost his job over his criticism. Back in 2015, when he was on, he told us, This time around, Israel is much more cautious and less brazen in its public acknowledgement of its lunatic policies. Again, that was eight years ago. Kilter writes, at one point during the 2015 Norman Norman Finkelstein uh, rerun interview you ran last week, Norman says, the only thing that will work is mass nonviolent protest. There is an absolutely heartbreaking moment, Kilter writes, in a fantastic true anon interview that Finkelstein did last week where he breaks down why he was so wrong to say that and how ashamed he feels about giving that advice historically. 
We have our interview from 2015 at our website. This is hell.com, and it's free. All you have to do is search on Norman's last name, Finkelstein. If you have a guest or topic suggestion or just want to share something with the class, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook. You can post a suggestion on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole. You can leave your suggestion on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber. You can tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can share your idea with our Discord community. And if you do any of that, we will likely be sharing whatever you have to say on air. Coming up, Gaza is a nightmare. We'll share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what is happening on this week's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on the show next week. And historian Dr. Seb Vupper has a new past inside the present when Seb provides the historic context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb ventures onto thin ice and starts looking at some of the difficulties of understanding what's going on in Israel historically. And I understand he's a great skater, so that'll help. (laughs) News that scares the news. This is hell, and I'm not certain if there is any news that scares the news in the Western media more than covering the conflict between Israel and Palestine. It's as if they would rather not say a word about it, which is what they usually do until Israel becomes the victim of a brutal attack. Here to talk about the situation in Gaza in a way that is not allowed in the establishment media, professor and chair of UCLA's Department of English, Sari Makdizi, returns to This Is Hell to talk about his N Plus One article on Gaza, no human being can exist. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sari. It's been 17 years, so you probably don't even remember being on the show. <laughs> I, I, I do vaguely, but it's great to be back with you in any case. So your most recent writing at The Nation includes the story, the war against Palestinians on ca- campus keeps getting more absurd. Now, that article seems sounds like it's very timely if it was posted on October 20th, October 30th. But this article was posted four days before the attacks by Hamas. This article, the attacks by Hamas are October 7th. This article was posted on October 3rd. So obviously it was written before then, before the nation got their hands on the article. So what was the situation on campus before the October 7th attacks? Because this is, again, the context that is being ignored when it comes to the protests that are happening right now. What was the climate of those protests before October 7th? It was bad, and the the terrible thing is it's going to get a whole lot worse. I think. I mean, that seems that seems kind of inevitable. So, what part? I mean, you're talking about U.S. media coverage, and and it's true that it's been getting a little bit better, kind of. You know, if you look back twenty years or thirty years or whatever. But the the forces in the U.S. that are still absolutely consistent in their defense of Israeli apartheid have recognized that our college campuses are places where freedom of thought flourishes and where freedom of expression flourishes and where uh, scholarly and academic readings of, you know, for example, systems of apartheid and, and Israeli you know, policies in the West Bank and Gaza and so forth flourish because that's what we, we study these things. People study these kinds of things on campuses. And so they've realized, and this is not a new thing, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. The more that people at large across America. And I think when we look at, so if, I'm going to back up and say a couple of things here to contextualize what's happening on campus. 
when we look across the country, it's true that we see the US government absolutely complicit in what's going on, aiding and abetting and financing and rushing more bombs to the Israelis to bomb Gaza. It's true that the US House of Representatives just passed the most incredibly racist and ignorant censure of uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib. It's true that that's happening at the governmental level. But if you look across the country, there are demonstrations in all kinds of places, in train stations and bus stations and businesses on streets, protests, protesters literally by now in their hundreds of thousands across the US, including, it must be said, some extraordinarily uh, disciplined and, and smart and articulate Jewish students across the US. It's clear that public opinion has, it's been shifting over the, over the past you know, 15, 20 years. It's shifting much more rapidly now in favor of the Palestinians, and people are increasingly critical of Israeli apartheid, Israeli violence, Israeli brutality of, of, you know, against the Palestinians. And so campuses are one of the places where, where, where we see expressions of support for Palestine, and as I said, criticism of, of Israel in an academic sense, as well as a kind of political solidarity sense. All of which means that the crackdown on, on free thought and intellectual freedom and academic freedom on our campuses is very, very high on the agenda of those institutions that support Israeli apartheid, of which there are many. And their intent is to, if they can, to basically abolish thinking, if they can do it. I mean, they, they would certainly like to do it. Certainly, they would abolish our, our ability to talk and act freely and to, and to criticize the Israeli state. So let's take one example of what they're doing. And this has been a campaign they've been pushing for, I don't know, 10 years now, maybe. And I've written about it. I wrote about it in my last nation piece. I wrote it about, wrote about it in another nation piece about, uh, again, campus, the campus, the suppression of free thought or the attempt to suppress free thought on campus in the nation, I don't know, like three, four years ago as well. And in other places, I've written about it, the LA Times, it's a, like, this is not a new thing exactly, but it's going to get worse, which is the attempt to conflate criticism of the Israeli state with anti-Semitism, to redefine the concept of anti-Semitism to include criticism of the Israeli state. And what, so for example, if you keep, if you look at organizations like the ADL, uh, it and other Jewish organizations in the U.S., they, co they consistently track what they call anti-Semitic incidents. And then they say, oh my God, look at all this incredible rise in anti-Semitic incidents. But what they don't tell you, unless you probe a little bit, is that some, many, I mean, it's, in fact, it's impossible to quantify because th the whole point is they're conflating these data. But many or some, or to some extent, these many of these incidents that they register as being anti-Semitic are in fact anti-Zionist, not anti-Semitic in the in the real meaning of that term, which means that they're they're generating a sense of hysteria on campus that there's a, a tidal wave of anti-Semitism, which they really mean by which they really mean anti-Zionism. Now, are there anti-Semitic incidents taking place? Yeah, of, of course. There's racism on campuses, you know, to some extent, it's a minority thing. It's not like something that's taking over our campuses, just as there's Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism and so forth. I mean, there's all kinds of racism all, all across. We live in a very racist country, as people probably noticed by now. But the point is that this, this attempt to conflate criticism of the Zionist state with, you know, anti-Jewish racism or anti-Semitism, what they're trying to do is basically to say criticism of the Israeli state is hate speech, and therefore it should be abolished from our campuses. 
that's basically and I'm, you know I'm, they say it it's like a, you don't you, you can go go to their websites and and their channels and so forth and see that that's exactly what they're saying so if the supporters of Israel have their way there will be no criticism of Israel in our campuses a professor or a student who criticizes Israeli apartheid will be labeled a proponent of hate speech and therefore if they have their way not only suppressed but possibly subject to punishments of various kinds and censure and, and like what happened to Rashida Tlaib in Congress for example and and that's that's kind of the direction we're heading in will we'll be a kind of despotic censorship most interestingly of all in the service of a foreign state on our American university campuses that's the most extraordinary thing is like well where are the American patriots when we need them this is being done in order to further the interest of a foreign power American students, American professors at American universities are being told or being threatened with, and this is happening all around us. Like, again, I'm not making this stuff up. It's, it's all over the place. And that's what my piece in The Nation is partly about, one particular incident at UPenn. But it's like that's one can generalize far beyond the University of Pennsylvania. So I hope that makes sense as a kind of opening explanation of what's happening. And yeah, just to, to go back to kind of connect these dots, if you don't mind, the because of what's happening now, because because anybody apparently other than in the white house and and you know the, the congress uh anybody else in this country looking at what's happening sees the isolation of two million people half of them children their bombardment now for we're now in the second month of round the clock heavy bombardment by one two and three thousand pound bombs artillery naval bombardment white phosphorus being dropped whole neighborhoods in gaza being obliterated 10,000 people, actually today it's closer to 11,000 people killed by the Israelis, up to almost 5,000 children killed by the Israelis. People are horrified. People across the political spectrum in the US, I mean, normal people are horrified. Our politicians don't seem to be, but most you know, ordinary Americans are. So there was a poll re re like right into the first week of the bombing of Gaza that showed that a majority of American citizens want there to be a ceasefire including a majority of Republicans, like 56 or 57% of Republicans, and an overwhelming 80% of Democrats want there to be a ceasefire. This is like three weeks ago. I mean, imagine what it, I'm sure if they did the same poll now, it'd be much more than that. The, uh, Americans don't want this to be happening. They don't want our names to be used to defend and, and augment what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. And the what this so where this what this means as far as university campuses are concerned is that there's going to be a ferocious attempt now to stifle all of these forms of solidarity with Palestinians and criticism of the Israeli state because from the standpoint of the institutions that defend Israel and its system of apartheid all of this is unacceptable and there's all these reports of billionaires who are donors to universities stating supposedly stating that they are going to no longer donate to universities they're no longer going to fund universities because of this growing what they see as anti-semitic attacks on college campuses while usually as you point out they're mostly crit critical of zionism so that's another kind of stifling of speech, but it's also saying that, you know, college education across the United States is being threatened by support for the Palestinian cause. What do you think about the state or the state of the universities when they have these gigantic endowments? They, none of them are having any kind of financial situation and financial problems whatsoever. When they have these gigantic endowments and they're telling us that 
you know, university life is going to be threatened for everybody because billionaires are going to pull the plug. I mean, yeah, first of all, university life won't be threatened if billionaires, billionaires pulled the plug. Let's just, let's, I mean, for example, the places that are being particularly browbeaten about this kind of stuff are like the, you know, many of the, North, I don't know about Northwestern, but many of the Northeastern universities, you know, the, the, the typical Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Penn, and Columbia, et cetera, the, the, the Ivy League. These are, these are universities with endowments, the equivalent of the GDP of, you know, medium-sized medium countries. So they're not... If somebody stops giving money, Harvard is going to be absolutely fine. They, you know, they don't need anybody's further donations and so forth. So it's not there. There's no real threat as such, but we can take a, we can talk about different kinds of threats. For example, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal by a UC Berkeley law professor saying, "Don't hire my students uh, because because they're because he says they're being anti-Semitic." By which he really means they're being critical of Israeli racism and apartheid and, 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 and genocidal policies that we see like the ones that we see being transacted in Gaza right now. And now for a professor to say, don't hire my students. I mean, and it's an extraordinary, it really like professors, we don't take Hippocratic oaths, but you know, part of the job of a professor, not with undergraduates necessarily, but with graduate students or professional students, like law students, part of our job is to get these people jobs. And so for a professor to say, don't hire my students, it's the most astonishing, not, it's like dereliction of duty isn't, doesn't even, it's not even the right phrase for it. It's, it's like an abandonment of responsibility uh, that's extraordinary. And it sums up what's happening. So yeah, this, this sense that uh, you're not allowed to say this stuff. And as I said, if these people had their way, there would be all criticism of these, or they say it would be completely abolished. It wouldn't happen. On our campuses and if it happens on our campuses it's going to happen elsewhere in public life as well because the one follows the other and the other thing that's you know again for people who are working in different domains what's really interesting here is that actually at the pretty much at the dawn of the internet zionist institutions the the campus watch comes to mind they were right there at the very beginning of the internet they were using the internet as a to kind of to produce blacklists of of faculty and students critical of, this, of Israeli policy on American campuses. And there are many other such, you know, Zionist institutions, I'm not going to name them, but you probably know who they are, that keep track and they, they have these absurd blacklists that are basically really dumb sort of attempts at character assassination of professors and students and so on. All the, the attempt of which is all to kind of, to hurt them professionally or to make them worry, to make them feel like they're being doxxed. And students are actively being doxxed all over the U.S., uh, undergraduate students in particular, although some people like there's a, a law student, I think at NYU who had a job offer rescinded uh, because of a position she took on, 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 on Palestine. Um, it's extraordinary what's happening. It's really extraordinary. But, the, but where I was going with this was that this stuff begins with Zionists taking advantage of these kinds of institutions, including the internet, to, to impose this sort of surveillance and blacklisting and so forth. But then other other kind of political movements will just will you know a door has has opened and other institutions and movements will follow suit and then it'll be people working on you know name name whatever it is climate change or or the environment or economic policy or all kinds of things like what well why aren't those things going to be abolished from campuses too who knows but that they might be as well because once this precedent gets established people will, other political causes will follow through inevitably and then we won't have universities we'll have we'll have uh, you know silent prisons, basically, where we have to do what those in power want us to do. We have to read the text that they tell us we can read. And if we if we stray from the, the path that they've assigned to us, 
will go to jail. I mean, I don't, that's kind of like if they have their way, that's what this that's what America would look like. You start your article at N plus one on Gaza. No human being can exist by writing that recently an Australian Palestinian friend of yours was invited to appear on Australia's national television network to discuss the situation in and around Gaza. His white interviewers posed all the usual questions. Can you defend what we've seen from Hamas militants? How has the Palestinian cause been helped by the violence? How can anyone defend the slaughter of young music lovers at a music festival? Do you defend Hamas? Those are the questions your friend was being asked. So, Sari, why those questions? What does it reveal to you about the white interviewers when they ask Palestinians to defend such such acts? What do those kinds of questions, which you call the usual questions, reveal about those who are asking the questions? And you have to keep in mind, these are news, these are anchors, so it's also their managing editors as well. Yeah, I mean, so several things, two main things come up here. One is, uh, and this is my friend in his answer stated it more beautifully than I that I could state it right now. But but one thing that's that's important is that what what comes across is that some lives matter and other lives don't. So at the time he was being asked all these questions about the Jewish civilians who had been who had been killed. Were, actually, we don't even know that they're all Jewish, but whatever, Israeli Jewish, and there were undoubtedly some foreigners as well who were killed by. Uh, who, and who shouldn't have been killed, obviously. That was a wrong thing to do for, for, for civilians to have been killed on October 7th. But basically that the, that those lives lost are, are worthy of mourning, which they are, but that meanwhile, these other lives that are being lost on a much on a far greater scale, the Palestinian lives in Gaza and the West Bank, for that matter, those aren't worth mentioning, let alone mourning, right? So there's this, there's a there's an obvious kind of it's not even it's not even impl- I wish it was implicit. It's explicit kind of value differential valuation of different human lives according to their ethnic and racial and religious status, basically. That's that's one thing that comes across. But the other thing that comes across that's been kind of again persistent ever since then is this is this it's this astonishing kind of uh, uh, narrative that that of course Zionist institutions have picked up on. Uh, and and but you know our Congress is guilty of the same thing. Our president, the administration, are guilty of the same thing. Not all, but much of the mainstream media is also guilty of the same thing. Which is, let's talk about October seventh in isolation, as though it's this event that came from outer space that has no precedent in human history, that has can't be explained by anything other than just the the the, the brutality uh, of 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 Hamas or Palestinians in general, right? Uh, as though, as though it, and then also as though nothing's happened since October seventh. It's, it's almost like if they had their way, they basically October seventh would be the first day and the last day in the history of the world. Nothing happened before it to contextualize it. Nothing has happened since it that we should also pay attention to because of the eno- enormous scale of of damage being done to an entire population and you know killing all these thousands of people in Gaza. Right. So that's that's kind of what's in the background there, which I, which I think is is extraordinary on the part of supposed journalists who should be asking questions and thinking, not just reading from a government script, basically. Benjamin Netanyahu has said that October 7th is Israel's 9-11. Within the context you were just talking about, the framework that you were just talking about, in that sense, is it their 9-11 that we think of 9-11 as nothing led up to that? And after 9-11, nothing, you know, we think about 9-11 in a vacuum. In that sense, are we, is uh, Israel applying the 9-11 idea to October 7th? Is that accurate? Because that is the way in which 
we think of 9-11 as something that exists in a vacuum as well. I mean, that's, it, is, it, is, it is a very analogous situation. And the, the weird thing is that Biden or Blinken, or maybe both of them, I think it was at least Biden, said that don't, don't do to this what we did with 9-11 because we realized our mistakes. And of course, the mistakes we made you know, as, as the United States is that, not a mistake, but the advantage that was taken of by, by the, the catastrophe of 9-11 was to go on a rampage around the world and kill, I don't know how many millions of people in countries from Yemen and Somalia and Libya to Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq most, most prominently, 20 years of American occupation and violence in, in Afghanistan that ended as it began with the Taliban in charge. Well, what was the point of having done all that? So the weird analogy is, yeah, it's partly this kind of, this let's pluck this one moment, this one incident, and just remove it from all context. Think of it in a vacuum. In fact, you remember that the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was, was attacked by the Israelis precisely because he said October 7th, terrible as it may have been, didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a context. There's a context for everything that happens. And they don't want to talk about the context. But the flip side also is that if you look at what the U.S. did after 9-11, it went on this in insane rampage around the world, killed all these people, destroyed God knows how many countries, displaced 38 or 40 million people around the world, smashed entire societies, killed, bombed, destroyed, etc. And all for what? Like, look back now. What was accomplished in America's global war against terror? absolutely nothing other than having destroyed lives across the country or sorry across the world and made anti-american sentiment much much more powerful because people are like looking at the us like what are you doing what you're like a, a wild you know rampaging bull running up running amok across the world but killing you know literally a million or so people and the israelis are doing something very similar in gaza they're kind of venting themselves they've now killed close to 11,000 people and I, you know, I can't tell you what's going to happen for sure, but it seems pretty clear to me, and based on precedent as well, that the Israeli government has set itself a, an unachievable task for this mission that it has in Gaza, which is to eliminate Hamas, which is not going to happen. It's not, at least as far as I can tell, it's not going to happen. So yeah, they're going to kill eleven thousand so far, and who knows? Who knows when their bloodlust will be sated? Is it going to be eleven, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand people? I don't know. I can't tell you. I mean, it's horrific to watch it. I don't know when they're going to feel sated, but whatever it is they do, no matter how many people they kill, no matter how much damage they inflict, no matter how awful they make living circumstances for the survivors of their insanity in Gaza, they are not going to accomplish their political objectives, just as the U.S. didn't accomplish its political objectives. So the kind of the analogy to 9-11 goes both ways in that sense. So prior to October 7th, was Western media not reporting on what was happening in Gaza or the West Bank because Israel has such control of the area that uh, what was happening inside Gaza was simply not known by journalists outside the occupied territories? Was it a lack of reporting on what was happening? Or was it a lack of knowledge of what was happening because of the ability for Israel to censor what was happening? No, it wasn't a question of censorship per se by the Israelis. It was a question of, unfortunately, the mainstream media latch on to something when there's a big, something big is happening, like big explosions and buildings being blown up and people killed on a large scale and so forth. If that isn't happening on a large scale, they're not interested. So for example, all through the past 17 years of Gaza's, of the, the Israeli imposed siege on Gaza, there, you know, we're, the, 
it like what is there to report people you know, what is the news i mean of course, of course i think it should be reported right but the the slow death of of you know the people dying of, or, not, or being exposed to malnutrition in gaza or an entire generation of palestinian children growing up stunted because they're not getting enough nutrition because they're living under a, a quasi medieval siege in the 21st century those things aren't they don't seem to be worthy of reporting from the mainstream media because they're quiet, they're boring, they're invisible, they're inscrutable, right? All the cancer patients in Gaza for this this previous 17 years who couldn't get to treatments outside of Gaza because they're not allowed through Israel's gates, the, the gates of the, the prison gates that Israel has imposed on Gaza, that's not news from a Western standpoint. And similarly with the occupation that's underway in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, where now, right now, it's it's violent. The Israelis have killed, I don't know, they killed 10 people this morning in Jenin. They've killed 200 people since October 7th in the West Bank, more or less. All, most of them civilians. I can't remember what percentage of them are children, like similar to Gaza. Um, but it, but so now it's getting covered. But if you, if you rewind to before October 7th, and I write about this in my first book on Palestine, Palestine, uh, Palestine Inside Out, day-to-day um, -day life for Palestinians in the West Bank, as in Gaza, is absolutely saturated and defined by Israeli forms of control. So for a farmer to get to his fields, for a student to get to her classroom, for a teacher to get to her classroom, for a parent to get to their kids, like all this kind of stuff, it's all controlled by the Israelis. I'll give you one example. I mentioned it in the, in the N plus one piece. From when the Israelis are at the peak of the sort of uh, curfew and closure and checkpoint system, that the Israelis imposed on the West Bank in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2004, more or less. And they, by the way, they brought that regime back with a vengeance right now. Uh, you know, because Palestinians weren't able to move around the West Bank, um, often it was the case that ambulances were held up at checkpoints, including ambulances carrying pregnant women trying to get to the hospital to give birth for whatever the reasons are that they need to get to the hospital to give birth, often because they need medical care or they need postnatal care and so forth. And in, in many instances, in fact, in 61 specific instances, these ambulances weren't able to get through Israeli checkpoints, and therefore these pregnant women gave birth literally by, you know, on the road by the side of the Israeli checkpoint. And of the 61 women to whom this happened, 36, I think it was, more than half anyway, of the babies that were born in this way died there on by the side of the road by an Israeli army checkpoint. None of that registered in, in mainstream media in the US. It's, these things aren't stories. If, if anybody knows about them at all, which they probably don't, it's like, oh yeah, there's a data point here. X number of children, babies died. X number of women gave birth, etc. But like, it's not, it's not, it's not. We don't know who these, what these women's names are. We don't know the names of the the babies that died because they don't constitute news. And so the Israeli system of suffocation of Palestinian life, the structures of apartheid that the Israelis have enforced that separate Palestinians into the Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, who are second and third class citizens of the state. The Palestinians, of course, the, the largest single constituency, those not allowed to return home who are living in forced exile following their expulsion in 1948 during the ethnic cleansing of 1948. There are the Palestinians in the West Bank. Then there's like different subdivisions in the West Bank, some better and worse or worse and even worse. Like Hebron, for example, is worse than Ramallah, but, but you know, Nablus is also worse than Ramallah, but Hebron is probably worse than Nablus and so forth. And then, of course, the ones in the in East Jerusalem who are somewhat better off, and then there's the, of course Gaza, which is the worst of all places. So, this system, like it just operates, you know, the scale in which it, on which it operates, the scale in which it affects people, is so small 
you know, it's like one person dies here. One person can't get the cancer care. A woman gives birth at a checkpoint. It's, it's like it's one and two and three at a time. It doesn't constitute news. But of course, add it all up. And of course, it, it should. It ought to constitute news. But it doesn't come with big explosions. And therefore, the media don't pay attention to it. And therefore, it doesn't get absorbed as something worthy of attention here in the West. We are speaking with professor and chair of UCLA's Department of English, Sarimak DC, who is returning to This Is Hell to talk about his N plus one article on Gaza. No human being can exist. You write that at any moment, without warning, at any time of the day or night, any apartment building in the densely populated Gaza Strip can be struck by an Israeli bomb or missile. Some of the stricken buildings simply collapse into layers of concrete pancakes, the dead and the living alike entombed in the shattered ruins, often rescuers shouting, can anyone hear us? They hear calls for help from survivors deep in the rubble, but without heavy lifting equipment, all they can do is helplessly scrabble, uh, scramble and scrabble at the concrete slabs with crowbars or their bare hands, hoping against hope to pry open gaps wide enough to get survivors or the injured out. Now, those images, I do think would be powerful uh, and they would be painful for anyone to see and would likely lead to any observer demanding a ceasefire or peace. However, those images are not reported or at least widely reported to the public as uh, was reported this week by CNN itself, quote, as a condition to enter Gaza under IDF escort, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. CNN has agreed to these terms in order to provide a limited window into Israel's operations in Gaza. While CNN admitting that it is allowing itself to be censored is at least honest, is it necessary for CNN to allow the IDF to censor what they report in order for their viewing audience to know what is happening in Gaza? In your opinion, is the only way to get footage of what is happening in Gaza to acquiesce to Israeli military censorship? No, obviously not. I mean, the there so the most prominent station that has reporters, all kinds of reporters inside Gaza is Jazeera, both Jazeera English and Jazeera Arabic, which which has done an extraordinary job. And Jazeera, I mean, the one that the one that I'm glued to, you know, almost twenty four hours a day these days is Jazeera Arabic because because they have this incredible proliferation of correspondence inside Gaza, but also outside of Gaza. They have people all over. The rest of Palestine, Lebanon, you know, all all over the obviously all over the the, the immediate environment for to, to follow what's happening across the scale, right? And and like, why can't CNN have somebody inside Gaza? I mean, like, really inside Gaza? Why can't they? Why can't they get footage from Jazeera? Or why can't they have some? You know, a free. There's plenty of uh, plenty of journalists, the ones not being killed by the Israelis, inside Gaza who would be happy to 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 be a you know to do freelance work for. For for CNN or whatever, there's some technical journalistic term I forgot for somebody a stringer, right? For somebody who does sort of part time work for for a, for a news organization inside Gaza, but of course they don't want that. And that you I mean you're pointing Chuck to the to the to the real to, to the to the to the crux of the matter here. When you watch Jazeera Arabic, it's live footage. You, you, so literally, like you often hear the correspondents giving up, and you, you hear a gigantic explosion happening live in the background. Their footage is coming live. It's like it's untuned. You hear the constant buzz of Israeli drones. It's this constant zzz in the background 
of all the reports coming out of Gaza is this incredible reminder that these drones are out there, many of them armed with Hellfire missiles provided by the U.S., attacking ambulances and people and buildings and so forth. And yeah, it and it as I said, it's raw, it's unfiltered. Sometimes when they're when they when they have not often, by the way, but sometimes when they're you know in in hospitals, they try to cover up the the most appalling sites. But the other day, for example, I was watching Jazeera Arabic, a, a correspondent, one of their actually one of their I guess stringers, so doing doing a report for Jazeera, who uh, going to a a, play, a building that had just been bombed. And there was a, there was a, you could, so even though they were blurring out the, the most awful particular scenes within the larger picture so that you don't see literally body parts, it was very, very, very clear. In fact, at one point, kind of, even though they're imposing this kind of blur, I could see what was clearly a human leg being carried, put on a stretcher by, by, a, by a medic. And as you see this scene of this this in this in this particular instance, this medic literally gathering here's a leg, here I presume there's a torso, here's a head, here's some arms. It was just off to the side, but within within the camera, a teenage boy crying Baba Baba Baba, which is Arabic for daddy, 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 right? And there's obviously what he's watching are the the pieces of his father's body being collected by a medic and put on a stretcher and obviously taken away to i don't know where they take body parts a morgue i guess and just like to like those that kind of footage that's the kind of news every american ought to be able to see because that's what we are funding that's what we're financing that's what happens when our politicians join ranks and say, other than the 13 people in, in the House, maybe it's 16 people now, in the whole of the House of Representatives who, who called for a ceasefire, everybody else is saying, no, keep going. This is, this is what we're supporting. We ought to know what the consequences of our, of our actions are. And th that's what the consequences of our action are. P children being brutalized, children being traumatized, for that matter, parents being traumatized. I mean, I'm a parent. I, you know, let's look at it from both sides. Imagine holding, as you see also in Jazeera Arabic all the time, fathers, mothers, hold, cradling the shattered bodies of their children, of their babies, weeping, saying goodbye to them that they barely, they barely even knew some of these babies in many cases, and they're already gone. We should see this kind of footage. We should be exposed to it, and we're not. And you'd have to ask the masters of the corporate universe why we're not allowed to see this footage on mainstream television or you know you know newspapers and so forth but here's the flip side of all this chuck which is that more and more and more americans especially younger americans do not get their news from cnn they get their news from social media and on social media these sorts of images these clips these things are available and they are influencing a younger generation of americans so i think this is what we have to go back to what we we're talking about in terms of the campus climate Younger Americans, I think, by and large, and there are surveys that, that, that hold up this, what I'm about to say, which is that younger Americans do not support the Israeli state in the way that their parents or grandparents used to. They don't, they're, not, they're not trapped by what William Blake called the mind-forged manacles of censorship and Israeli narrative that have been imposed on the U.S. for decades on end. They've broken free. They're not subject to the narratives imposed or the script provided by CNN and the New York Times. They can think for themselves. And as you know, as you said at the beginning too, like anybody looking at this stuff, you don't need a PhD to figure out what's happening. You don't need a PhD to, to determine that this is wrong. What we're seeing is wrong and it should be stopped immediately. 
And young people are seeing this and they are demanding and they are, you know, uh, as at universities across the country, above all, but also train stations and, and other places to, to taking to the streets and saying, stop this, stop this, not in our name, stop this, stop this madness. You also point out that as ever, the Israelis claim that they are targeting the terror infrastructure. As ever, the bodies or body parts actually pulled from the rubble or picked up from the neighboring streets are mostly of women and children, unlikely constituents of the phantom terror infrastructure, from which the occupying power, with the blessing and benediction of its superpower patron, claims to be defending itself. Can the terror infrastructure, as Israel calls it, be separated from the public Infrastructure. The IDF claimed they were trying to help Palestinians by targeting Hamas to keep Hamas away from the people of Gaza. What are the challenges in targeting only Hamas and Hamas infrastructure in Gaza? They're not. They're not. That's the whole point. They don't target Hamas. And by the way, IDF is not a term that I use. You can call it the Israeli Army, the Israeli Armed Forces, if you want. But the, the D in that word is, or in that phrase is, I think, objectionable. Yeah, that's a very good point. Just like calling the, yeah. the war industry here in the United States the defense yeah. industry. Yeah, so it's not, it's just, we have to be careful with the terminology because of that, you know, this stuff, again, Blake and the Mindforge manacles, right? The, the terms are really important. But anyway, to go back to your question, Chuck, no, like they're, they're not, they're not, they're not capable of targeting Hamas. That's the whole point. That's why, or for example, when they claim that they are, for example, they dropped six 2,000-pound bombs in the middle of Jabalia refugee camp last week. And they, you know, they destroyed basically a city block, three or four big apartment buildings all at once. And even Wolf Blitzer, who's hardly like a, you know, a critic of Israeli policy, in fact, if anything, he's like a cheerleader for, for Israeli policy, even he was like, wow, you know, talking to an Israeli spokesman on CNN, he's like, you, you, but you knew all these people were there well, we were trying to get one guy in Hamas, they said. Yeah, but but all these people were there. You knew that they were there. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's basically tough, essentially, right? So they can't, there is no way for them to target Hamas because fighters, you know, no guerrilla fighter in the history of guerrilla warfare, anti-colonial guerrilla warfare, has ever stood around saying, come get me. Of course they're not going to, because that's not, they can't. They don't They don't have tanks and air, air, airplanes and artillery and the rest of it. They have to do hit and run attacks that's how that's how guerrilla fighters have always fought this is that is the nature of guerrilla warfare it always has been so what they what they can attack instead are the population so they blow up apartment buildings and they attack again and again hospitals and ambulances and they've bombed of the of the of the bakeries supported by the world food program uh 19 bakeries they support the world food program does 19 bakeries in gaza 18 of the 19 have been bombed by the israelis Right, they've been bombing the what's left of the water networks. They're bombing water reservoirs. When fishermen who didn't have bread set to sea, and they, which is obviously a very, very dangerous thing to do, given that the Israeli Navy is out there with gunships bombing the place. But they set to sea to do what they could to bring in something for people to eat. The Israelis bombed the, the, the basically the entire fishing fleet in Gaza. They bombed where people can grow whatever it is they can grow in what's left of. The agricultural lands, you know, in the, on the outskirts of Gaza City, for example, they've they've bought they've basically made the uh, going to the title of my my N plus one piece. They've made basically life unsustainable. This and other than killing eleven thousand people now, they're basically making it 
such that no human being can exist in Gaza. That's not going after Hamas, that's going after an entire population. And there's a term for that in the annals of international law, and the term is genocide. That's We should call a spade a spade, also speaking of terminology. That's what's happening right now, and that's, that's, what, that's what we're dealing with. A, a state that is unable to, to target the people that it says that it's really after, because that's not what it's really after. What it's after are the Palestinian people themselves. And again, there's nothing new here. The Israelis have been doing this since the early January, February of 1948, when the ethnic cleansing of Palestine started started taking place by Zionist gangs storming into Palestinian villages and either rounding people up or shooting them or terrifying them or terrorizing them out of their homes, driving 800,000 Palestinians from their homes in 1948. Nothing has stopped. So when you see the images that the Israelis themselves broadcast, by the way, this is extraordinary, or they have on their on their Twitter stream, you know, like they're, they show this column of terrified refugees leaving in the down the so-called safe safe routes that they've allowed now from the northern part of Gaza to the southern part of Gaza. And a few thousand people have gone on this route, even though, by the way, the, there's nowhere for them to go in southern Gaza. And anyway, the Israelis are bombing the south almost as much as they're bombing the north. So it's not like it's any safer in the south, but whatever, in extremists, you do what you do to save your, your family, I guess. But this to see this column of Palestinian, terrified Palestinians with white flags and so forth, a whole column of them that's what the Nakba of 1948 looked like. So what we're seeing is, and Israeli politicians pretty much across the spectrum there, such as it is, it's not a very wide spectrum. Uh, it begins on the right and it ends on the far right, but pretty much across the spectrum, they're all saying, yeah, we want a second Nakba. I mean, when, get, when Netanyahu says we want this to be a second war of independence, well, their first war of independence was the Nakba. It was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That's what their, that's what their war of independence was in 1948. That's what they're, if this is a second war of independence, that's what this is now. And it's not just that, Netanyahu himself and plenty of other Israeli politicians, again, across the spectrum from the right to the far right in Israel, have said other things. For example, Netanyahu has repeatedly referred to Amalek, the, 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 the story from the Old Testament about basically a genocidal campaign against the people of Amalek, and the, the the biblical command from God, I suppose, to to exterminate this people, you know, including babies and suckling pigs and all the rest of it, just eliminate them, wipe out this people from the surface of the earth. That's what that's what we're seeing happening. This isn't about Hamas. This is about the people of Palestine. It has been since 1948. We have been speaking with Professor and Chair of UCLA's Department of English, Sarimak DC, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his N plus one article on Gaza. No human being can exist. And I cannot stress this enough. You need to go read this entire article. I had about 70 questions for Sari, and conversations always just go in different directions. And we did not touch on a lot of what is contained within this writing. And it really is exceptional work. It's, it's heartbreaking when you read this. It was, uh, I was tearing up while I was reading this. So Sri, this is really fantastic work. We've got one last question for you. And as always with all of our guests, you probably don't remember this, but our final question is the question from hell. All these questions have been from hell today, but the question from hell is the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer where our audience is going to hate your response. I think I'm going to hate your response, actually. You write that what we are witnessing is perhaps the first fusion of old-school colonial and genocidal violence with advanced state-of-the-art heavy weapons, a twisted amalgamation of the 17th century and the 21st, packaged and wrapped up in language 
that harks back to primitive times and thunderous biblical scenes involving the smiting of whole peoples, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, and of course the Philistines. So we were talking earlier about how Benjamin Netanyahu is saying that what we are doing to the people in Gaza is exactly what the United States did following 9-11, so that somehow justifies it, or at least deflects any criticism. If this is high-tech colonialism, is this setting a precedent to be repeated again and again around the world? Will others be inspired, as Israel was inspired by the United States, will others be inspired by Israel and do the same? There are very few states like Israel in the world. Very, very few states could do what they're doing and get away with it for as long as, they're, as they've been getting away with it. And that's, you know, because very, very few states have the un, unreserved backing of the United States of America. Carte blanche, total cover in the Security Council, you know, money and financing and bombs and weapons and so forth. So no, I don't. I don't think. I, first of all, most other states don't don't act this way. Most other states aren't founded on the basis of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Some are obviously, but the but this is the, this is what makes Israel unique. That what we're seeing before our eyes now. I mean, yes, you could say in in many many ways this is like the Trail of Tears. You know, it, but it's like in 2023 on live television. That's what makes Israel unique. Is that we're, we're looking at an old school, like 17th, 18th, maybe even early 19th century kind of genocidal campaign of ethnic cleansing, like, you know, like ones that have taken place in other places in the world, including, of course, in the US itself. But those campaigns, those large scale campaigns, of course, small, small scale campaigns continue in different places, especially in the US again. Um, but the, those large scale campaigns of ethnic cleansing took place in, in, it's like in, in, in remote history, relatively speaking, whereas this is taking place on live television in 2023 as, as the world is watching aghast. That, that's unique. No, nobody else in the world is like that. Suri, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. We had a great conversation uh, 17 years ago. We're going to be replaying it on our Patreon podcast this week. I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. You can follow Suri Makdisi on, on Twitter at Suri Makdisi, S-A-R-E-E-M-A-K-I-D-I-S-I. D-I-S-I. Yes, exactly. I'm getting a little dyslexic and a little... Teared up here. So, Sri, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really do appreciate you back being back on. Thank you. Another time, I hope. All right. Yes, soon. And it's not it's not going to be 17 years. <laughs> Don't worry. I hope not. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is not the media. This is hell. If you learned something from Sri about the current nightmare that is Gaza. Please show your support for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions, analysis, perspectives, views like that of Ceres that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just going to thisishell.com and clicking on the word support, where you can see all the ways you can help us out here at This Is Hell. 
Tune into this week's Patreon podcast when we'll be talking about the horrible prospect we face, the frightening possibility of what is to come, the nightmare that is looming, the agony, the misery, yes, the hell that awaits us in November. And we are not talking about November 2024 and the possibility of another Trump administration. But this month, November 2023, this year, and the dreaded holidays that approach. Also on Patreon, as we were saying, we are sharing our earlier interview with uh, Sari Makdisi, which took place April Fool's Day 2006, when he was on to talk about his then-just-posted article at Counterpunch, The Rise of Israel's Avigdor Lieberman, on the success of the right-wing politician in the 2006 elections, and what that portended not only for Israel's future, but the future of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. But the only way you can hear all that is, uh, you know, including a warning from your friends here on This Is Hell of the upcoming holidays and a 2006 talk about Israeli politics that is a harbinger of what is happening in Gaza today is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get a special secret code word, so you get a discount on all the This Is Hell merchandise. As a Patreon patron, you can also ask me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, your very own question from hell. Our Patreon page is also a great way to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. You get all of that at patreon.com slash thisishell, as well as showing your support for completely independent, commercial-free, so non-profit we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. This is Hell. Will, what is this week's question from Hell, and how are our listeners responding on... What are you doing again today? Which one are you reading from? Uh, it says Hellhole on here, but I think you guys did that yesterday. Um, yes, I think we did. Uh, so it's Facebook. Re- regular it's regular Facebook. Facebook. Exactly. But, right. And just so people know, if you hear some of these questions, uh, answers that you've heard uh, from Welcome to the Hellhole, some people posted it on both. So just so you know. All right. This week's question from Hell is, what are you uncritically supporting these days? <laughs> and first up on regular Facebook... Uh, Sloan TL the fourth I might add replies me 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 (laughs) alright John T replies hopefully me (laughs) a lot of people are very concerned about themselves (laughs) Eric E replies consensual sex it's the one thing I want everyone friend or foe to have in their desired frequency and variety all right. Okay. Um, Erica L replies, my dog, Sonic. <laughs> okay, your dog's name is Sonic. <laughs> I love it. Um, Matt M replies, Hamas, allegedly. <laughs> That's good. That's a really good I one. I can relate. Um, Fabio L replies, Elon Musk's continued tweaking of Twitter to accelerate it into the grave. That's a good thing. Here, here. Chris K replies, seriously, Al Gore. <laughs> really? What? <laughs> really? I need to... <laughs> that can't be serious, right? It's, it's, it's got to be sarcastic. I hope so. I don't know. Slip into our DMs, K. <laughs> Tell us. Please, please clear please this up for clear us. Clear this up. Um, <laughs> Warren L replies, anybody but Trump. <laughs> All right. Um, By the way, we have a really great Christopher Hitchens interview on Patreon. You just have to search on his name where he goes off on Al Gore before the election. Oh, yeah. It's real good. <laughs> it's right. real good. 
He's he's good at being a crank. Sure. <laughs> yeah, he sure was. Was yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew S replies, "This is Hell Patreon." Oh, there you uh, go. There you go. Right. Way to suck up, but there thank you. you. Thank you very much. Um, Andrea J says, um, "P <laughs> amp and uh, at symbol SSY." Yeah. Put it together, listeners. Yeah, so I think she's talking about her cat. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, and I'm glad a woman posted that. Yes. <laughs> a man posted a similar thing not too long ago, I think. So. And uh, we didn't want to read that on here. No. Um, <laughs> I think I ended up cutting that. But anyway, uh, Riley CD replies, self-criticism and bad tautologies. <laughs> That's a good nice. one. That's a nice, very clever. Uh, Wesley JW replies, Satirical jokes. <laughs> it's got to be that Al Gore thing, right? Must be. <laughs> Must be. Uh, Scott P. <laughs> replies, porcine diarrhea epidemic. <laughs> so that was also posted on the Welcome to the Hole <laughs> page. Again, that's CKUW's very own <laughs> Scott Price. Right. So direct your criticism <laughs> to CKUW in Winnipeg, which we love airing on every week. Thanks for casting a wide net there on the Facebooks, Scott. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Making sure that got out crucial there. message gets out <laughs> Thank there. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, Marie G., Replies, Palestinian children and their parents. Even Napoleon had his Watergate. This is hell. And now, Sebastian Vupper, Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, has a PhD in history, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Oh, the special hell of anything regarding Israel. Exquisite, really. If there ever was a topic where, no matter how you do it, it is wrong was true, it is this one. And yet here we are, because, well, we can't just shy away from it now, can we? I do not think we, as in we on the show here, engage with the topic because, quote-unquote, if it bleeds, it leads. No, I reject that notion, and I believe Chuck and everybody else who works on the show would agree with me there. At least, for me personally, dealing with my own individual changing positions on the whole thing has been an arduous four weeks now. Of course, I have to ask myself why I even care... It's not like I have any personal ball in this game. Sure, I know a smattering of Israelis, Jewish, and Muslim folk, but that does not really give me any personal connection. I am not Jewish or Muslim myself, and by all accounts, I should just shut the F up and deal with issues closer to home. But here's the problem. As a German, this is an issue that actually does hit very close to home, no matter what. Because... Israel and Germany are in many ways intertwined by the sins of my grandparents' generation. And since I grew up in Germany, and since I was politically socialized in German far-left-wing circles, I for a long time held that specific German left-wing position on Israel. Namely, that we as Germans owe unconditional solidarity to the Jewish state that was founded because our grandparents tried to exterminate the the grandparents of the people living there today. No questioning of what Israel is or was doing is or was allowed. 
And then I moved to the United States, where things are quite different in that regard. I apologize, dear listener, if this is so far all a bit navel-gazy. It is something I have been engaging in a lot over these past few weeks. Beyond that, actually, I have been engaging with this dynamic over the past few years whenever things heated up again in Israel. I am trying to come to terms with how my personal perspective has shifted, and how horrified I am now of the perspective that I see among my old German leftist friends, who are increasingly revealing themselves as just blatantly Islamophobic and basically just racist towards brown people, with a shocking lack of reflection and insight. Which then makes me wonder if I was like that myself, or if I would still be like that if I had not moved to the United States. I have, in a past segment, talked about the difference in the way the German left and the American left view Israel. For the German left, and I am generalizing here, unconditional solidarity with Israel is something of a matter of faith. If you do not profess to it, you are not really welcome. It is pretty wild to see these days. German leftists are usually very loud and very annoying whenever there is a war in the world. There are usually large protests and demonstrations, lots of calls to action online in which people ask for signatures under petitions to stop the war in wherever. Sudan, Myanmar, you name it. The suppression of women wherever women are suppressed. But with the butchering of Palestinians, it's crickets. The people who do speak up end up being ostracized. On the American side, in turn, things are very different. Almost all of my American leftist friends are calling for people to contact their representatives to call for a ceasefire, at least. There is a lot of condemnation of what Israel, in particular the Israeli far-right government, is doing. The German, the German left is aware of this and talks of a, quote, significant lack of empathy for Jewish people, unquote, at best, and, quote, concerning levels of anti-Semitism, unquote, at worst, among the American left, in extremely high-horse condescending tones. African-American activists also are not spared. The black community, it is said in German leftist newspapers, has traditionally been rather anti-Semitic. Because let me remind you that any anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is the official stance of the Federal Republic of Germany, which is a position that most Germans on the left wholeheartedly embrace. As a historian, Israel is an extremely difficult topic. We historians pride ourselves on presenting facts in a neutral way, devoid of judgment or bias. In a case like Israel's, this is excruciatingly difficult to pull off. Doubly so, since every side that has a stake in this history will accuse one of being biased one way or the other if certain standards or positions are not met. Even Israeli historians are far from immune here. Just look at what happened to Ilan Pape's career after writing histories critical of his country. But how can it be that a country founded in the aftermath of one of the worst genocides in history ends up being this way? How can it be that a country founded by the survivors of one genocide goes and does a genocide themselves? How can we understand the Israeli people and positions here? This is a very difficult history, difficult in terms of being uncomfortable and not at all pleasing. It has a lot to do with the instrumentalization of trauma towards the end of gaining power. 
the Israelis are not the only people in the world that went through th- a, a, a dynamic like this, through a process like this. And within the history of the Israeli people lies an uncomfortable truth that Art Spiegelman, the comic artist who made Mouse, formulated best. Going through the horrors and suffering of the Holocaust did not make the Jewish people into good people. It only made them suffer. Because suffering alone is not a virtue. Going through suffering is not an act that cleanses one of the potential for doing awful things. But this is an incredibly difficult thing to understand and accept. And it is a position that seems in itself cruel and further dehumanizing. But it is sadly true that hurt people hurt people. Two things can be true at once. A group of people can have been the victim of horrifying crimes against humanity, and that same group of people can at the same time also engage in horrifying crimes against humanity itself. A group of people can have committed war crimes and then in turn also be the victim of war crimes. That is what I mean by difficult history. Our instinct will often say that a group that has been victimized requires our sympathy and solidarity, and just to be absolutely clear, that is true, but what we, but, but what do we do when that group that we want to sympathize with then turns around and starts behaving in such awful ways? Those are difficult truths to reconcile, but they are no less truths. There is a prominent example in German history that I think illustrates this overall dynamic quite well. After World War II, the German Reich lost its eastern provinces. Silesia, Pomerania, and eastern Prussia were forcibly ceded to Poland and the Soviet Union, respectively. The Allied powers decided this at the 1945 Potsdam Conference without, well, obviously any German input. The German people who had been living in these regions for millennia were expelled into what was left of the Reich. The same thing happened to German ethnic minorities that had for centuries lived in enclaves across Eastern Europe. These people became known in West Germany as the Vertriebene, the Expellees, and they occupy a curious position politically because, on the one hand, as Germans, they had been at best beneficiaries of the Nazi regime and at worst willing collaborators in the Nazi horrors. But now they themselves had become victims of what basically was an ethnic cleansing by which which uh, Poland and the Soviets cleared these newly won tracts of land of German elements, often with brutal violence and without any compensation. Making matters worse, these ex-police then were themselves instrumentalized, willingly on their part, at least to some degree, by the German far-right in post-war Germany. They were used to foster anti-communist sentiment. They became something of Germany's lost cause. And due to the ex-police association with the far-right, few people in Germany who were not sympathetic with that part of politics would want nothing to do with them. But the ex-police nonetheless present a conundrum. They were victims of war crimes and ethnic cleansing, but they were also at the same time beneficiaries of other war crimes and genocide, at least in part. They have a justified position against the Poles and the Communists and the Soviets who expelled them from their own ancestral lands. And yet, can the Poles and Communists and Soviets really be blamed for doing this, given the horrors that Nazi Germany unleashed on them just a few years earlier? Can the ex-police be shown sympathy and solidarity if they so willingly let themselves be instrumentalized for the German far-right cause? 
In some way, this case provides a dark mirror to that of the Israelis. In their case, things work the other way around. The Israelis were victims of genocide and war crimes, and then they ended up engaging in genocide and war crimes themselves. The important thing in these cases is, I think, to really understand that two things can be true at once. A people can have experienced unimaginable suffering, and these same people can also inflict unimaginable suffering. People can be perpetrators of injustice and at the same time also be victims of injustice. And this is the really important part, neither negates the other. Israelis live in fear of rising anti-Semitism and of Islamist terror attacks. This is a legitimate fear, and it is a justified position. At the same time, however, the Israeli government, and by extension individual members of the IDF, commit war crimes and genocide on the Palestinian population. That is also a justified position. And the situation in Israel is ultimately not that complicated, because it is all about power relations. On one side in this conflict, you have a, a side that has tremendously larger amounts of power than the other side. One side has one of the world's largest militaries with modern tanks, fighter jets, precision-guided missiles, and the backing of the world's sole hyperpower. The other side has what? paragliders and homemade rockets? To suggest that this is somehow an evenly balanced conflict is nothing short of absurd. But as with the other thing, the issue in this conflict, too, is that both sides have ultimately justified reasons that undergird their actions. The problem is that this impetus is then used by those in power on both of these sides to take these actions way too far to justify atrocities. And to be clear, the Israelis started this circle of violence and have done quite a lot to keep it going since it keeps the Israeli far right in power. The Palestinians have a similar problem since the Palestinian far-right in the form of Hamas also keeps perpetuating these circles of violence that are based on wholly justified reasons, again, to keep themselves in power. And both sides do this at the expense of their own citizenry. But saying this publicly opens one up to allegations of hating Jews. If you want to learn more about the German ex-police, historian Raymond Douglas' 2012 book orderly and humane goes into great details on that particular history. And if you want some more complicated positions on Israel, find some of Ilan Pape's work, like The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. I should add that Pape has been accused of misrepresenting his sources by Israeli historians, but there is little love lost there, as Pape in turn has accused these the same historians of being blind on the matter of Israel and being racist towards Arabs. Yes, writing history can be hell too. Next week, I will delve into a hellishly complex topic that I have been teasing for way too long. Uh, and we'll start laying out where this whole Israel thing comes from by looking at where the idea that undergirds it all originated. Looking at the often surprising and not at all straightforward history of Zionism.
So, uh, and I just want to make another statement, another thing about uh, Seb's work that he is he's done today. Uh, he actually turned us on to some writing by Susan Neiman at the New York Review of Books on the way in which Germans view what is taking place in Gaza right now. That piece was excellent. Yeah, and so she's going to be on the show um, not this coming Monday, but uh, the following Monday, right before Thanksgiving. So look for that. Awesome live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people this is hell the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want you can see everything that we have right now at thisishell.com when you click on support so Will I think there's there's still an answer on Twitter that we can get to but I think that everything else is covered you would know better than I found some stragglers okay sweet so over on discord Goofus Magoofus says indecision. <laughs> like right. uh, uh, question from hell. Again. Question from hell is what are you uncritically supporting these days? <laughs> I suppose that would help when I read the answers to know the question. <laughs> it's almost like Jeopardy. It is. Uh, we'll we'll give you the answers and then we'll the questions. That's right. <laughs> what is uh, let's see, Craig over on Patreon mm-hmm. plies. Cthulhu. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft I guess. reference. Nice. Yeah. That's nice. awesome. And then, yeah, let's look at the lone Twitter reply. Uh, George Bailey, or shoot, George B. Yeah. Replies, love, period. So, the answers I liked most were essential, saying that, again, this week's question from hell, Will? This week's question from hell is, what are you uncritically supporting these days? What are you uncritically supporting these days? Essential saying, giant meteor. (laughs) Craig saying Cthulhu, that was good. Kim G saying, dinner omelets, breakfast for dinner. Mm. I totally agree. Uh, Hugh, my neighbor, leaving their 12-foot skeleton up a week past Halloween (laughs) and counting. Uh, I did like Goofus McNoofus's indecision. That's a good one. Scott P. saying porcine diarrhea epidemic. He said it twice. Twice. <laughs> so you got to give him that tip. Effort points. Uh, Marie G. saying Palestinian children and their parents. Eric E. saying consensual sex. It's the one thing I want everyone, friend or foe, to have in their desired frequency and variety. Matt M. saying Hamas, allegedly. Fabio L. saying Elon Musk's continued tweaking of Twitter to accelerate it into the grave. Riley D. saying self-criticism and bad tautologies. Welcome to the hellhole. We had Martin S. saying criticism. Julie M. saying squirrels. Kobe S. saying collapse. Austin S. saying weed naps and disassociating. Jen D. saying my ambient habit. And I did like George Bailey's answer love any of those really stick out to you will i mean they're all pretty good and also no love for d's nuts and does nuts <laughs> oh, no, I, I can't keep doing that i know i just they need, it was noteworthy i i really like self-criticism and bad tautologies that is a really good and one i really like hamas allegedly yeah that is but, really uh, good i don't know scott's is pretty good yeah, let's go with matt m's hamas Allegedly. Yeah. That makes you the winner, Matt, of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is tell us which piece of merchandise you would like at thisishell.com when you click on support, and then we will get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. Congratulations. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are you uncritically supporting these days? What George B. said. 
love. Thanks to everyone who sent in their answer to this week's question from hell. Will, who are our scheduled guests on next week's show? Coming up next week, we have investigative journalist Nick Terse, who returns to discuss his most recent writing at The Intercept. Secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed Somali woman and her four-year-old. The U.S. military has neither compensated nor apologized to the relatives of the woman and child. It acknowledges killing in 2018. Yeah, so uh, we were supposed to have Nick on a couple of weeks ago, but that interview and uh, his story got embargoed. So we didn't want to do the interview at that time. We're going to be doing it on Monday as that article will be posted at The Intercept on this weekend, on Sunday. Awesome. And then uh, coming up. After that is writer Pooja Bhatia, who will be on to discuss her Baffler article, Deadly Strain, How the UN Sought to Deny Its Role in Haiti's Cholera Epidemic. Now, you might not think that that's very uh, timely, as that happened a while ago, but with what is happening in Gaza and what will be happening, even if there is a ceasefire following, you know, during a ceasefire, there's still going to be a lot of death because of... all the disease that could be running rampant with their medical system in such disarray. Huge thank you to this week's producers, Will Ippen and Dan Kugler, as well as Chris Colfan, who joined Dan earlier this week. Thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, Jeff, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry Theron Hummison, and Pete Valvanis, just because. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when we will be discussing the frightening prospects for November 2023, let alone November 2024. And we are sharing that 2006 interview with today's guest, Sarima DC, on what happened 17 years ago that may have contributed to today's violence in Gaza. Don't forget, every Wednesday we have This Is Hell office hours here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. It's actually downstairs from where we are. And uh, that happens every Wednesday evening. It's our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, and we hope to see you all there. Last night was amazing. A listener of the show brought me from the former mayor of La Paz, Bolivia, Lupe Andrade, who has been on the show in the past, brought me a hand-carved cane made of coffee wood that Lupe made. The former mayor of La Paz. I have one of her handmade canes in my home right now, and it is Absolutely spectacular. How cool is that? That is really you got it's I'll bring awesome. I'll bring it in next Tuesday so you can see it. We should share an image of it. We have uh, the best listeners. Oh my god. It's it's just inc- last night's office hours just blew me away. So thanks to everybody who came out. And everybody who did come out. I hope you can also join us for the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which is happening on Winter Solstice Eve on December 20th. It's just our This Is Hell, uh, you know, regular office hours, except it's the Holiday Office Party. So if you don't have an office or your office doesn't have a holiday party, you can make our Holiday Office Party your Holiday Office Party. Also, if you're going to be in town because you are from Chicago and you're visiting for the holidays and you don't have an opportunity to come to office hours uh, regularly, uh, please join us for This Is Hell's Holiday Office Party, which happens every year. And uh, that's, again, happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood on uh, Wednesday, December 20th in the evening. So drop by for that. Also, 
if you have, when you think about the show from this year and you think of this was my favorite interview that we played or that you heard this year, uh, please tell us what your favorite interviews are because throughout the month of December, we will be playing the best of This Is Hell 13 interviews, lucky 13 interviews that our staff as well as our listeners have uh, see as our you know have heard and they believe is our best of the year so tune in for that as well bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell my demon is on my butt Uh my demon talks to me a profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>